Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Brahim El Gabli, author of Moroccan Other Archives, History and Citizenship After State Violence, published by Fordham University Press in 2023. Moroccan Other Archives investigates how histories of exclusion and silencing are written and rewritten in a post-colonial context that lacks organized and accessible archives. This book draws on cultural production concerning the years of lead from 1956 to 1999 to examine the transformative roles memory and trauma play in reconstructing stories of three historically marginalized groups in Moroccan history. Brahim Al-Gabli is Assistant Professor of Arabic Studies and Comparative Literature at Williams College. His research encompasses areas of language politics, indigeneity, human rights, transitional justice, political violence, archive creation, memory studies, Amazigh and Berber literatures, and environmental humanities. Brahim, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, so before we get started, could you share a little with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in comparative literature and Arabic studies? Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak with you. Uh, as you said, I work on Morocco, and I'm from Morocco. I grew up in a little village in the southeast of Morocco. The village is called Tifultut in the area of Warzazet. And as every child in my community, I grew up at home speaking Tamazight. Uh, which is the Amazigh mother tongue uh, of a lot of people who were called Berbers or Imazighan. At age seven, I joined the public school in my village. And at that time, my mother tongue um, kind of like slipped away and stayed at home. And I was schooled my entire life in Arabic and French. And then I learned English later. And it's very important to give you this background because Amazigh children go to school and once they enter school, their mother tongue of Amazigh just recedes and goes back home and it becomes the language of home where their language of education is either French or Arabic. But you in Morocco, you learn both as you go. And then when you once you go to high school, you learn English as well or Spanish if you are in the north or in the south of the country. I finished my whole education in public schools, primary school, mi- middle school, high school, and then I also did a teaching degree uh, to become a, a bilingual teacher of French and Arabic in Moroccan primary schools, and I taught French and Arabic for many years, 10 years in the country. And in the meantime, I did my BA at Bordeaux University and my maîtrise as well. And I specialized in translation studies, uh, French, English, and Arabic, and business studies. And then when I moved to the United States, I was also finishing a master's degree in um, 
uh, Anglophone studies. And I moved to the States and I taught at Swarthmore for a little bit for three years, I think almost four years. Then I decided to do a PhD and I finished my master's degree and PhD at Princeton University in comparative literature. And what brought me to comparative literature is really this multilingual background and learning later on the possibility of doing other things that are done just specializing in area studies because comparative literature is an all-encompassing open field in which you can be in conversation with other disciplines uh, while also focusing on a national literature based on a national language. So because of my multilingual background, because of the experiences they come with both as as somebody who has who has taught for so many years and who is in, involved in education and civil society and you know thinking about questions of history uh, comparative literature was the right place for me to be doing the work i've been doing and i'm very happy with it amazing thank you um and hearing how much language has been a part of your life i think you know we'll talk more about language but it makes so much of this book um make a lot of sense so turning now to the the book moroccan other archives you state in the introduction that you were interested in exploring spaces where there are no archives and creating archives in the space where records have been destroyed or never existed and then reassessing the role of cultural production in sustaining or undoing archival silence in morocco uh, that's a really exciting set of goals. <laughs> it was exciting for me to read as someone who thinks a lot about archives. So what compelled you to do this research and write this book? Uh, absolutely. And that's a great question. Uh, I think the assumption generally is that archives exist. If you look at the scholarship on archives and archiving and archive creation, what you encounter is that archives exist. They are somewhere. And the idea is we are mostly grappling with their silences. So for me, as somebody who comes from a context where archives don't exist or where people are like historians particularly are confronting the question of writing history, histories, but they are they are, they don't they can't find archives or archives are not accessible or archives are are hidden or they don't simply exist. So the question for me has been, how do we write histories for which archives don't exist? If you think about European context, for example, or American contexts, you have laws that go back at least a hundred years organizing archives and making sure that the like documents of value for nation states or governments or societies are preserved and kept and stored in certain ways uh, and that laws are passed to preserve that. We did not have that thing in Morocco, for example, until 20, 2012, when Les Archives du Maroc was created, uh, which was the official national archive of Morocco, was early established in 2011. So you, when you think about that, and you're confronted with this question, you, you start wondering, where do I start from? What happened to the archives if they, if they exist? And then what if they don't exist? How are we going to create something in lieu or in place of the non-existing archives? 
And uh, when Morocco established the ERC, the Equity and Reconciliation Commission, to which is kind of like a similar experience of the TRC in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was uh, started in the 1990s in South Africa to kind of resolve the legacy of apartheid and reconcile South Africans with each other and carry on the memory of state violence in that country. Morocco in 2004 established the ERC, the Equity and Reconciliation Commission. And one of the questions that came up during that period was the question of archives. As investigations were ongoing, the victims of state violence during the years of late, which extended between the country's independence in 1956 and the passing of King Hassan II in 1999, has always been, how can we find the truth how can we identify the perpetrators? How can we shed light on who did what? And how can we hold people accountable for the wrongs that they had done during that period? And the idea has always been that it was possible to find everything that happened if we could locate an archive. Uh, so the archive was the hope, was kind of like this panacea that everyone was looking forward to finding so that they can simply answer the questions, find who was responsible, and based on that, decide the retribution. Well, the uh, the chair or, or the president of the uh, National Council for Human Rights, whose name is the, the former uh, president, whose name is Dries Liazemi, actually came out with this startling statement saying that, well, uh, I'm paraphrasing him, I have to disappoint everybody. These archives don't exist. We tried, we could not find them. And what's more, what they, find, what they found out is that in the 1960s, they could find kind of like fragments of information where people were buried, they would find some names, they would find some sort of records that were hidden somewhere in like state offices. But the closer they get to our time, like the 1980s, the 1990s, state violence was simply erased. There was no record of state violence. However, if state official archives or state documents are silent, other, other documents are not. And these are documents that are produced by the victims and survivors, witnesses, and people who lived during this period of state violence. So for me, Instead of placing all the authority and all the power with state documents or state archives or archives that were produced by state organs, we also have to think about this other archive that did not go through this process of archive creation or that's not uh, kind of like governed by state secrecy, state limitation laws, and uh, organic laws that organize archives, which Morocco actually will create, as I said, in 2011. So that's one. And then thinking also about archives, not all archives actually were destroyed systematically for political reasons. When I was, this when I was doing this research, what I found out is that a lot of these archives were actually either lost because of rain, because of the wind, 
because of natural elements, because people were not really aware of the fact that that was an archive and that it has value. So we can imagine how, my, how many documents that were left by the French administration were just left to decay in these administrations in the early period of, of independence, because people were like, these are French documents anyway, and now we are getting our independence. Uh, good riddance, we don't need this document. And a lot of stuff was lost. I, one of my professors who did, Abdullah Hamoudi, who did a lot of research in the south of Morocco, told me that up in, until the 1960s, he was able to see rooms fall of French archive just being kind of like, you know, uh, kind of blown away by the wind and like in the ceilings were leaking and all of this was lost. And then the other part of it, because a lot of public uh, administrations in Morocco, particularly in the mountains, are in very cold areas. People don't have wood sometimes. People want to make fires to hit their bodies and they would just go and get a box of documents and burn it. Uh, and that that was how a lot of documents were lost. So for me, like coming back to this question of like why I'm interested in this is of course this awareness of this question of archive and also realizing belatedly how close my home and the place where I grew up was to incarceration spaces like I grew up in an area that was surrounded by three of the secret prisons that will become later really important in the way we talk about political imprisonment in Morocco. I grew up in an area that had a huge Jewish population that lived in the 1960s, but nobody bothered to explain to us like what happened, how did the Jews leave, in which conditions, in what terms, where is the archive of this Jewish migration and, uh, and and all of that. And then also reading a literature against history and historiographical discourse made me aware of the topicality of, of the topic of archives, but also the importance of, of the project is, itself, of like creating a new language to think about archives and archiving in this particular context where there is no state archive, or we cannot really talk about the existence of, of an archive. And then I think uh, another element that I would like to, to add, as, or a factor that I would like to add as a motivation for this project was the fact that the Moroccan society was never given a chance to work through its own losses during this period of, of the years of late. So people talk about their experiences. People talk about the absence or the disappearance of Jews from their context. People talk about political imprisonment and state violence. But this talk or these ideas remain within social memory, but they never make it into the written sources that then become an archive. That's why this idea of other archive as a space where forms of testimony and access to history, either through oral oral witnessing or through memoir writing or through all sorts of non-official forms of recording his, historic historical truths that people lived from their own perspectives is really important for my project. And that's why I, I, I got interested in this project in the first place. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, and that like personal 
realization of of suddenly recognizing that you're living in the middle of these archival silences that's so powerful uh, and you alluded also you know in your your introduction um or when you introduced yourself today to to these issues of language which are the topic of of the first chapter um the archival silence around Amazigh culture and specifically the role that language plays in you know undoing that uh, so could you talk a little bit more about how um, Amazigh tradition and history has been preserved and restored and how language and cultural production have played a role in that? Absolutely. And that's a great question. And uh, just to explain a little bit. So Amazigh or Tamazigh is uh, the language of the indigenous people of North Africa who call themselves Imazighan. Uh, European sources call them Berbers. Les Berbères in French, and Arabs call us Al-Barbar. However, in the last 30 years, the Amazigh culture movement, which evolved, which emerged in the 1960s, has adopted Amazigh or Tamazigh as, as a preferred way of, of talking about what's formerly called Berbers. Of course, both terms continue to be used, and sometimes people have either use it because they want to be pejorative and they insist on that, or they just want to use, you know, an inherited term. Uh, 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 and in both cases, I think we have to kind of like be sensitive and use Amazir as that's the, as it is the preferred name that Amazir uh, like to use to refer to themselves. So, why is there an Amazigh problem in North Africa or an Amazigh issue in North, in North Africa or in Tamazgha, again, which the Amazigh culture movement has been using instead of the Maghreb or North Africa to refer to the entire area that extends from the Canary Islands in the Atlantic Ocean to Southeast, Southwest Egypt, in encompassing Mauritania, Senegal, Chad, Mali, uh, Niger, Algeria, Morocco, Libya, and Tunisia, uh, is 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 because uh, in the post-independence period when the states got independence, particularly Morocco and Algeria, where there is the largest Amazigh populations, they decided to call themselves Arab Islamic states, entirely erasing the indigenous populations that formed at least half of the population at that point. In the 1960s, against this erasure, and official suppression of Tamazigh and its identity, educated Amazigh intellectuals, artists, thinkers, lawyers, linguists started an Amazigh culture movement that first started in Paris by the foundation by, of the uh, L'Académie Berbère in 1966, and then by the establishment of the Moroccan Association for Research and Cultural Exchange in Morocco in 1967. Uh, the demands of this Amazigh culture movement were initially to recognize the Amazigh uh, dimension of North African societies, teaching the language, preserving cultural heritage, uh, seeing Tamazigh as part of the public sphere, 
uh, including it in education and rehabilitating the language and its culture. Uh, of course, the 1960s and the 1970s through the 1980s witnessed an effort from these uh, associations or this civil society to record and restore Amazigh heritage, whether it is like oral traditions, whether it is written sources in Amazigh, or actually musical traditions, particularly like the Rice music, the uh, sank poetry, and there was there was a lot of uh, work that was done to document. Amazigh heritage. This is like in the 1960s and 1970s and the 1980s, which I call a period of preservation. The, the effort then was really like a realization that Amazigh heritage is going to be forgotten or be lost if we don't document it. So there was this feverish documentation establishment of pamphlets, cassettes, and all of that. And during this period, a new Amazigh consciousness emerged. And this consciousness moved from documentation to preservation. Uh, uh, actually, not from documentation to preservation, from documentation and preservation to creation, which means that we are leaving this realm of only documenting what has been, what we inherited from the past to actually creating something new. And that's where Amazigh activists started organizing these conferences to talk about Amazigh literature, to, to talk about translation, to talk about how uh, uh, Amazigh intellectual histories and literary histories can, can be put in touch or in relation to other experiences worldwide. And that's where starting to move, particularly in the 1990s, towards a discourse of indigeneity by linking Amazigh activism to human rights globally, and by thinking about Amazigh, the Amazigh societies or Amazigh experiences in relation to Native Americans, for example, or Native Australians or Native Canadians or other Native peoples who are not sovereign or don't have autonomy in their ancestral homelands uh, and see these experiences. So this actually gave a new and a different spirit to the Amazigh culture movement, uh, which entered this strongly conscious period of creating symbols, of revisiting histories, of rethinking geographies, and of using literature as a space and as a space to create indigeneity. And through that indigeneity, re-envision a whole field of, 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 like of history, of literature, and societal thinking as well in North Africa. In this sense, so culture production becomes part of an invented tradition. And by inventing tradition, I mean there are things that really existed but there are also things that were added or invented or given new meanings to speak to a wider Amazigh 
society or a, a wider Amazigh uh, collectivity that transcends the borders of just Morocco and Algeria. Because now we're talking about a trans-Amazigh sphere that's called Tamazgha, particularly with the establishment of the Amazigh World Congress in 1994, the Amazigh activism became larger and bigger than just the borders of one nation state. Within Morocco specifically, which is about, uh, which I write about in my book, so uh, Amazigh activists demanded that street names be changed, for example. They emphasized the, the New Year's Eve, the, the Amazigh New Year in, 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 on January 14th every year as a national holiday. They uh, took to the street to celebrate Amazigh holidays. Uh, they rehabilitate types of clothing. Uh, they rehabilitated the Amazigh year and the Amazigh calendar. They used their outlets to produce literature, novels, theater, uh, the, to renew Amazigh music, particularly with the experience of uh, a, a musical band called Usman uh, in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies, but then also other other uh, mu musical groups, and then I think an important uh, element here is the reading of history that Amazigh, Amazigh know go all the way back to the Latin period in North Africa to tell us like, look, we have these historical figures that wrote in Latin. They were Amazigh, but they wrote in Latin. We have these historical figures who were Amazigh, but they wrote in Arabic. And bringing this heritage together to create a sense of continuity within Amazigh history within Amazigh literature. So all in all, when we think about this, this uh, Amazigh culture, culture production documents, uh, rehabilitates, renews, reinvents, and then also changes the way we think about place and space and the public sphere. And that's what I discuss in this chapter, how we go from a state of erasure where Tamazight was entirely suppressed by the state to a new reality in which at least now every Moroccan is aware that there is something called Tamazight because it's on the public buildings. Like we went from a, a period where only French and Arabic could be seen in front of ministries, in front of, uh, you know, like police administrations, which used to arrest Amazighs who were writing in Amazigh, in Amazigh script in Tifina to be in today actually adorned by this script. It's an amazing, it's a phenomenal change to think about how much cultural, cultural uh, production could lead to deep transformations, both in society and culture. And today, when you see Tifinag, I read Tifinag as another archive, for example, this Amazigh alphabet that has this strong iconicity that everybody sees and associates with Amazigh. And to me, this alphabet is not just an alphabet. It's a history of uh, both, um, both, both resistance erasure, but it's also an archive or another archive that allows Imaziran to continually write and rewrite that past that they were that was forbidden uh, for at least 50 years in the post-colonial period. Yeah, the uh, examples that you that you give in your book of you know photographs of seeing these 
this script now used, it's so powerful because it's so, so visible to, as you say, everybody driving down the street, um, a really amazing example of uh, the role of cultural production. Um, so you mentioned earlier that this book focuses on three different groups. The, the second and third chapters of the book explore the lost and silenced histories of Jewish communities in Morocco. Could you talk more about the mnemonic literature that you explore in these chapters and how it reimagines Moroccan Jewish history and represents lost Jewish Muslim community and citizenship? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, uh, so uh, by way of context, Morocco uh, up until the 90, uh, 1956, Morocco had about 250,000 Jews who lived in the country. Some left to Israel-Palestine in the 1940s, uh, but most of the Jews actually stayed in the country until after independence. And uh, during, uh, uh, during that period when Morocco was getting its independence from France, some Jewish intellectuals actually asked very important questions about what now? What now? Now that the French have left and a lot of Jews, particularly in big cities, were educated in the French system and uh, embraced French modernity. And there was no way that they could be, go back to the Morocco that was in 1912, when uh, both Muslims and Jews were subjects of, of, the, of, of the Moroccan state, you know? So now there has to be a changed relationship between the state and the new citizen in the post-colonial period. And one of these people was, was named uh, Carlos Denisri. Carlos Denisri wrote two important books uh, in which he kind of like tried to provide a vision of how Morocco should evolve in order to retain the Jews and become a democracy. Unfortunately, his project did not materialize uh, because Morocco entered this period of state violence and uh, Moroccan Jews uh, uh, left the country. They were not forced. I, I have to stress this. There was no like systematic uh, anti-Semitism uh, like, uh, or anti-Jewish uh, anti policy in Morocco by any way, but there was a negotiated solution uh, that kind of like led to the disappearance of Jews from Morocco by 1967. By, the, by 1975, almost all Moroccan Jews had left and just like maybe 30 or 25,000 were left in the country. And now today we only have about 3,000 left. So how do we go from 250,000 Jews to 3,000? What sort of processes led to that immigration? How did it happen? Who was involved? In what way? These are questions that Moroccans don't know. Uh, any answers for? Uh, and the lack of archives has made the writing this history really almost impossible on the Moroccan side because Israelis has, have actually written the history and have been writing about it because they have access to state documents. But on the Moroccan side, we don't know if these documents, for example, exists, exist. We don't know if there is an archive and if there is an archive where it, where it is. Uh, uh, but historians have been very reluctant to engage in writing this history because they cannot endorse whatever they find with official documentation. 
uh, on its broader on its broader importance this question of like uh, a jewish immigration from from morocco has a very interesting dimension within morocco itself which is like moroccan jews did not exist in a void they existed in a society they existed in a social fabric they had friends they had you know partners they had people they worked with they had colleagues they had they you know they shared home people were in there was intermarriage between jews and muslims and all this history disappeared all of a sudden because a major component of the moroccan nation is no longer there to to tell it however what i found out as i was working in re remote villages uh, as a teacher is that this history has not faded away and that people really want to talk about it. One of the first things that people tell you when you go to remote areas where Jews used to live is that, oh, I wish our Jews had stayed. Oh, we lost our friends. They left. Oh, we don't know. They just, all over all overnight, they, they just left. So there is this question of like, uh, unknowing what happened, or not knowing what happened, and then also people continually asking questions, which to me signals a desire to work through a deep trauma that society was not able to resolve or work through. Uh, and then years later, I discovered the existence of novels that were written by younger Muslims who did not live with the Jews, uh, who did not have the experience of living with the Jews when they lived in the country, but they go back and reconstruct Moroccan cities, Moroccan villages, Moroccan areas where Jews used to live and imagine this possible Jewish Muslim life that had been. And I call this, I, I call this mnemonic literature because I assume that this literature is written based on memories that this younger generation heard from older people who lived during that period, and then they narrativize that memory and make it into fiction to rewrite a history for which there is no archive. So instead of historians writing this history because they don't have the archive, the other archive of literature is enabling the possibility of writing it through mnemonic literature. And in general, mnemonic literature is written by younger Muslims who would like to depict the period during which Jews and Muslims live, live together. It, it has recourse to memory to record a historical period that's not the object of academic historiography. And there is a lot of emphasis on place, particularly like these novels take place in bars, cafes, you know, markets, places where Jews and Muslims usually would mingle and interact. Uh, familial histories between Jews and Muslims, particularly like there is a novel called Shema Oshitrit, Shema Oshitrit, which tells the story of this uh, <coughs> woman who at a very important moment in, in, in the history decides to leave her Moroccan Muslim husband and go to Israel, Palestine. And during that period, because the, the way she was going to be taken out of the country failed, she left her son in Morocco and took her daughter. And then this brother 
and sister grew up apart in two different realities. And then in the nine, in the 2000s, the encounter happened between them. And through the story of this family, we see how a Jewish Muslim household kind of like disintegrates and becomes really interesting. And then also there is this novel called Sintra that they, that they look at. It's the story of this Moroccan nationalist who blocks out the, the pre-1948 period in his own personal history. And as the novel evolves and unfolds, we discover that he had a Jewish wife during that period, and she decides to leave to Israel while he becomes a Moroccan nationalist. And then also, uh, mnemonic literature looks into like the microhistory of just like small places, contained places where Jews and Muslims used to share uh, like memories and used to, to be together. And they think my point here is to think about both proximity and distance, how when Jews and Muslims used to live together in one space, they shared a certain uh, conception of citizenship, of belonging, of having a shared destiny, and then how separation and distance creates this sense of like difference and disagreement and enmity. And this is something that other people have actually developed, like in the context of Algeria and other places. But I use it to think about how literature, particularly mnemonic literature, is developing a micro history of intimacy and the lost citizenship between Jews and Muslims. Yeah, and the way the way you um, demonstrate here, and then also in the next um, section, we'll talk about like the the way that literature can work to record memory that we don't find in other archives was a very good reminder for me as someone who spends more time in traditional archives. Um, it was really really helpful to to think that through. Um, so then moving on to the next section, you look at the archival record created to tell the history of secret imprisonment at Tasmamart. Could you describe for listeners the types of records that you see creating this other archive and how these open up questions and possibilities about what we consider as the archival record? Absolutely. I think Tazmamart is a horrendous prison in Morocco, and it came to symbolize the national trauma of uh, of the years of lead in 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 Morocco as a whole, but also, an experience that really evokes fear, particularly the fear of the state. So this prison was created in 1973 and it operated until 1991. And it housed 58 soldiers and pilots who participated in the two coup d'etats that happened in Morocco in 1972 and 1973. I think that Zemmert was created to set an example for anybody who dared to try a coup or try to be against the monarchy. So the people who were housed or sent to this prison were sent to die, and but not die easily, die in horrible conditions. They didn't have any light. They did not see the sun. They were imprisoned for 18 years, getting really like barely enough food to be able to survive. If somebody was sick, that meant that they were going to die. And after 18 years, 30 people died and only 28 survived. 
And because of its nature as something that you could not really envision or think that it's possible in the 20th century, Tazmemart became this phenomenal source of inspiration for many literary works and also for film, particularly documentary film, after 1991. However, before 1991, when the prison was still a secret prison or a state secret, there was what I call a scandalous other archive. A scandalous other archive for me means this archive that was created by activists, both in Morocco and abroad, in order to make the prison of Tazmamart known to the world. Because for people like in Europe, if you tell them in Morocco, <laughs> there was a prison where uh, people were jailed for 18 years. They, are, they, they cannot be communicated with. Nobody knows where their whereabouts. They are somewhere. They are describing these horrendous conditions like in smuggled letters or written on like cigarette packets and like uh, uh, just fragments of paper that they would find and stuff. People who did not believe it. So how do you move from unbelieving to making something believable? I argue that these people created what they call a scandalous other archive. The scandalous other archive encompasses all these uh, sorts of like documents that an underground group of individuals, family members, activists in Europe work together, translating, organizing, writing letters, uh, and then finding evidence from the prisoners themselves to be able to create the possibility of making people believe that Tazmemart existed. And this other archive, the scandalous part of it is mainly in Europe today. Like it's like in, in France with international NGOs, some of it is online because some of these organizations digitized it and put it online. So it's everywhere. Then a post, a post liberation after 1991, the, there is this literary other archive that, that's really fascinating. First of all, it starts with memoirs. Prisoners themselves are writing about their experience. There is Tazma Mart Cyril Dis, Ahmad Marzouki's Tazma Mart Cell Number 10. There is uh, Muhammad Rice's uh, memoir, Min Sekhirati La Tazma Mart, Tadkirat Dahab Wa Iyabil Al Jahim, From Sekhirat to Tazma Mart, A Return Ticket to Hell or A Round Trip to Hell. Uh, and then there is many others who wrote their, their memoirs or gave interviews to newspapers or talked about this experience on record, like for documentary films. And then during that same period, literary figures get interested in Tazmemart as well, because it's such a fascinating story, such that Tahar bin Jilloun, the very famous Moroccan francophone writer, wrote a novel about it entitled This Blinding Absence of Light. 
And this blinding absence of light wins one of the major human rights uh, like uh, uh, awards in Dublin. Uh, there is a scandal between the survivor who told the story to Benjeloon and Benjeloon himself. And then uh, this idea of Tasman March reaches even a larger audience because it was covered in a large international press. And then I find that an Egyptian an Egyptian novelist, for example, takes the name of a bird, of a, of a pigeon that one of the prisoners had in his cell right before they got they got liberated. And she, his name is Faraj. Faraj means denouement or happy ending. And she takes that name and uses it for her novel in Arabic, a novel that talks about the transnational experience of imprisonment in the region. But uses portions from the memory of Tasman Mart, for example. So Tasman Mart goes from this being this local topic to being this scandalous archive to being this huge literary and transnational topic that involves translation, particularly like Yusuf Fadil's novel, Ta'ir Azraq Nadir Ma'i, A Rare Blue Bird Flies With Me, gets translated into English, is a finalist for an award in, in, in the Arab world. And Tazmin Mert continues, you know, and just recently, one of the English translators translated the memoir of Aziz bin Bin into English. And then uh, this is like two years ago. And then like the Guardian, the Independent, you know, New York Times get involved and they write about Tazmin Mert. And Tazmin Mert continues in this way. That's So uh, there is this story of like procreation of this other archive of Tazmin Mert that reaches a larger audience. And, and of course, I talk also about embodied other archive, the embodiment of the experience of the body that carries the, the signs of torture, of state violence, but also the embodiment in women, uh, in the people who were not, they were not in jail, but they were jailed in other ways because their family members were in jail. And so how these women navigated a situation of state of disappearance and state violence and how they talk about the pain that they felt and the difficulty of living in a situation that decided to, to erase everybody who had a connection to the people who, who were in Tasmania. Thank you. Um, I, I want to move on to talking about the conclusion uh, you, because you note there that the um, existence of these various other archives is pushing the boundaries of what's been considered historiography. What are the questions and challenges that you see historians facing when working with other archives? And what are the tools and the infrastructure that we need to support the use of other archives? Absolutely. That's a great question. Thank you. So I think as like in any context of state violence and repression, the historian is faced with the question whether is it worth risking writing history or histories that will elicit the state's, the state's anger or that would endanger people's lives and careers and you know their families and all of that. I think between 1956 and 1999, Morocco's political history was not written by historians. Historians shied away from engaging in this history uh, for two reasons, uh, as I as I was as I alluded to. First, uh, 
there, there were no archives for this contemporary history. It's very, very close to the historian's moment. And a lot of people just avoided it because they can't write it, because they don't have evidence for it. And also because it's rife and it was it it was full of, of of problems and it was like getting into a landmine and nobody wanted to do that and the people who did were either in political science and that's a different discipline uh, political science you know you can i i, I think from a, a disciplinary point of view uh, political scientists in Morocco at that period had more freedom to deal with these issues than historians did, because history is really important for the way we think about lineage, the way we think about political legitimacy, and giving something the brand of history in this particular context, particular context has ramifications for the way the government was seen. So it had like it had like political implications that political science at that during that period did not have, and that reflected itself in like the number of dissertations, like the number of dissertations that talked about Moroccan post-colonial history were very was very limited. There were three of them, <laughs> um, one by Ma'ati Munjib, uh, one by uh, a woman named Billa Muqaddam. And another one, I, I forget his name right now, Mustafa Bouaziz. The three historians wrote about this, that period during, like before the 1990s or through the mid-1990s. And there was this saying among Moroccan historians that before 1912 is history, post-1912 is memory, which means that before 1912, there was an archive. We can work with an archive. There is documents, there is, there is manuscripts, and it's mainly 19th century history, 18th century, which is a period that that's very, very covered in Moroccan historiography. Like it's really nicely studied. However, anything that relates to the post colonial period, particularly when the French protectorate started in Morocco in 1912, that's memory. And when we talk about memory here in this context, it means that it's contentious, uh, there is no documentary evidence for it, and that there is possibility of getting into trouble for working on this period. That's why we have both censorship and self-censorship working during this period. So, what happens then when in the 1990s these other archive emerges? The king passes away in 1999, and then other archives really develop in, in a way that's, that was very phenomenal for that time. People are starting to talk, stories are everywhere, newspapers are covering this history, uh, you know, journalists are deeply involved in it. Historians could not sit still and just say, well, let them do what they are doing and then we'll come back later. No, the, the Moroccan histori historiographical uh, community actually started to get involved and they organized a conference called History and Memory. That was their entry point into this, this topic. It was in, I think, it was either in 2000 or 2001. And at the, if you read what, what was published then, you would see that 
they were still trying to navigate their place within this profusion of histories that are not written by historians. And there is still this idea that memory is not reliable and that history is scientific and that we have to keep the distance from the events that we're studying and that we have to base it on archives. Uh, you know, all important questions that historians have to deal with. But then in 2004 and 2005, a shift happens with the establishment of the ARC, the Equity and the Reconciliation Commission, and the invitation of historians to be part of conferences that was that were organized within that context to actually think about state violence and think about history and think about the, lead, the years of late. And one of the historians... Uh, Ibrahim Abu Talib was appointed as one of the commissioners within the ARC. So historians are now within, within the issue of state violence and are part of the process. And that kind of like encouraged them to think beyond what they had established as boundaries of their discipline. And that's where we see the importation of a French concept, l'histoire du temps présent, tarikh zaman rahin, or history of the present, to try and navigate this situation, the existence of, of these other archives. So some historians really did amazing work uh, thinking about other forms of writing or other sources that we can draw from. But most of the discussions that Moroccan historians had in this context of what I call the profusion of other archives were methodological questions. So they were mainly focused on how, how we write this history, how can we navigate it, how can we use these new sources that they call uh, other archives to write post-colonial history without falling into the traps of being overly subjective or being embroiled in personal vendettas and like, you know, that can emerge from writing about certain figures or some certain people. How do you avoid like uh, being sued by families of certain individuals? And I don't dismiss these questions, of course, they are very important. And then how do you use other archives? I mean, I remember going to the National Archive in Morocco and asking the director, uh, uh, like, what's your vision for these like these memoirs and 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 these other archives he just told me you know that's not an archive uh, and i think that sums it up in a lot of ways for me uh, and it and i tell this story because it's very important for it to be told that uh, uh, like uh, like like vision is really important uh, and and one of them is is really and one of the things that I really would like to see in the future is uh, is a digital archive because a lot of these a lot of these memoirs now actually have have uh, have don't exist anymore you know because people print them on their own account and then when the number of like copies three three hundred five hundred or probably a thousand are exhausted, they don't reprint them. And many of these people died. So it's really important for this archive or these other archives uh, have some sort of like existence beyond the lifespan of the people who produce them to continue having the same effect in the public sphere as I theorized that. The project of a digital archive is really exciting, but I especially like um, that you use the word vision, like envisioning something different for the archive is pretty exciting. Absolutely. 
Yeah, um, I have taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. Uh, I don't know if you have any new projects that grow out of this book or something completely different you're working on. I'm working on something entirely different <laughs> and it's called Saharan Imaginations, Saharanism and its discontents. And it's a second project I'm doing on deserts. And it it's not different in 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 certain ways, but I do use a lot of marginal sources and sources the same methodology that I use in this book I'm using in this in this other one to think about how a powerful imaginary imagination has produced deserts and created the way we think about deserts and navigate them. Particularly, I'm interested in uh, the lack of any environmentalist sense when we talk about deserts like uh, when we talk like if i talk about an oil spill in uh, in the ocean people would be very mad and upset and there would be protests because we think about life we think about like coral reefs we think about fish we think about whales we think about dolphins beautiful creatures right but when we talk about an, an oil spill in the desert i mean very few people would know about it first and second it becomes a non-event and i'm trying to explain how we came to associate deserts with death with fear with emptiness and with violence also and yeah, and that's what I'm writing about now. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for taking time to talk today. Um, once again, my guest today is Brahim Al-Ghavli, author of Moroccan Other Archives, History and Citizen Citizenship After State Violence, published by Fordham University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network.